Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and his word, is Galatians 5, focusing in on verses 7 to 12. But I'm going to begin with a collect. I think an argument could be made that it's worth being an Anglican just to get to pray the collects week to week. I don't know if you'd agree with that or if you've been around long enough to see all of them, but you will not, in my conviction, find a more biblical set of prayers anywhere. And you know they always come near the front of the service and Stephen leads us in those and every Sunday they change. There's one for every week of the year. Today is the 15th Sunday after Trinity. We had a collect earlier which would be entirely relevant to what I'm about to say. But I want to pray or say again for you the collect from the 11th Sunday after Trinity. So if you could think back four weeks, maybe you'll remember it. Collect for the 11th Sunday after Trinity as it is in the 1962 Canadian Book of Common Prayer. It's perhaps my favorite one. Listen to what it says. O God, who declarest thy almighty power most chiefly in showing mercy and pity, mercifully grant unto us such a measure of thy grace that we, running the way of thy commandments, may obtain thy gracious promises and be made partakers of thy heavenly treasure through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Mercifully grant unto us such a measure of thy grace that we, running the way of thy commandments, may obtain thy gracious promises and be made partakers of thy heavenly treasure. Yes, Lord, I don't even need to preach now. <laughs> That's my prayer for you as your pastor. I mean it literally. You come to Christ the King, to CTK, and Roger gets your name, and that name ends up on our parish list, and I get that list, and I use that to pray. And that collect for the 11th Sunday after Trinity is, I tell you, the primary prayer I pray for you. By name. And it goes something like this in a different vernacular. Oh God, grant Julia your grace. Grant Darren your grace. Grant Philip your grace. Grant Nicole your grace. Show up in their lives, Lord. No matter what's going on. No matter what they're facing. No matter what happens. And I don't know all that's happening in your lives, though sometimes I know a lot. Grant them your grace. Why? 
that they will run in the way of your commandments. Oh God, make them run. Freely run, unhindered, unstopped, not growing weary, running in the way of your commandments. That's what I pray for you. Do you know where that comes from, that thought? These are the most biblical set of prayers I know. It's Psalm 119, verse 32. You don't have to turn there. You're welcome to, but Psalm 119, verse 32. And in fact, it's so crucial that I'm just going to read the section where that verse appears in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 25. Just listen to the psalmist. Think about your own life. Psalm 119, verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. And here it comes. Verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Now I tell you, that verse moves me. You can sense that. I find it just about the most beautiful verse in the Bible. I will run. I hear such freedom in that. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. That's what I want in my life. Right? And that's what I want as your pastor in your lives above anything else. Everything else. I mean, the psalmist is in some trouble here, right? We don't know exactly what's going on, but it's not pleasant. My soul clings to the dust. It melts away for sorrow. There's, there's deep things happening in the psalmist's life. But what's the most important thing? Answer running in the way of the commandments of God. Which happens when God himself has changed your heart. It's the most important thing. But why is that? Why do I say that? Why do I say that's the most important thing? Why do I pray that for you? And I mean seriously, you get sick, I'll pray for you to get well. I'll visit you if I can. You face great loss of some kind. I'll pray for your comfort. Pray that the Lord will bring you his comfort in that. Or some other thing happens to you. I'll pray about whatever that is. But I will pray above all of that. That you run in the way of the commandments of God, that you trust the Lord in the midst of whatever it is you're going through. Right? 
because that's the most important thing. Because according to that collect of the 11th Sunday after Trinity, if it's right, biblically, we run that way that we may obtain thy gracious promises and be made partakers of thy heavenly treasure. Or in other words, that you may be saved, brothers and sisters. Inherit eternal life. This is but a passing, fading existence we have in this world. I'm praying for the eternal stuff for you. Paul cares about the eternal destiny of the Galatians. We're in Galatians 5 now. And two weeks ago, we considered verses 1 to 6, and we'll, we'll touch there again here now, but I, this morning, verses 7 to 12 are in focus. And we're going to begin in verse 7, but here's the context. Paul's writing to the Galatians. He's just warned them in verse 2. Uh, Philip read it a minute ago. In verse 2, that if they accept circumcision, as some of these teachers from Jerusalem are saying they have to do to be saved. Paul says, you do that. In verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, right? The same grace that Paul mentions leads off the book. At the very beginning in Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Not a throwaway. Grace to you, Paul writes. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, remember this, to deliver us from the present evil age. Grace has a goal. It's what God intends to do, to deliver us from the present evil age. When does that happen? It happens at the end of this age and the start of the next at the day of the Lord, saving us into the age to come by His grace. And Paul says, Galatians, you're falling away from that if you go this route. Why? It's verse 5. Here's why that's true. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. By, you live by faith. And just what does that eager waiting look like? It's not passive. <laughs> what do our lives of faith necessarily look like if we're going to get to that hope of righteousness that Paul's talking about in the end? This was all from two weeks ago. Remember verse 6. For, here's why that's true. For in Christ Jesus, because of what Jesus has done, on the cross and in sending out the Spirit in your lives, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The life of waiting for the hope of righteousness is not passive, brothers and sisters. Faith works through love. That's what our lives look like. Now, it means we love, and that's a very active concept. And next week, that's our focus, because verses 13 to 15, which are coming up next, are centered on this, right? Paul can say, the whole law is fulfilled in this word. You love your neighbor as yourself. So we, we need to talk about what that is, what that looks like. 
We will next week. But now, back to verse 7. There's the context. Now, verse 7. You know how else you can summarize what this is? To eagerly wait? To see your faith working through love? There's one other way you can say that. You can say, I'm running well. I'm running well. You were running well, Paul says. And then we see right there in verse 7 what running well means, right? What does it mean to run well? According to this verse, it means obeying the truth. which is what the Galatians had evidently stopped doing or begun to stop doing. You see that? The Bible talks a lot, uses this language a lot, about walking with the Lord or here specifically running with the Lord, a little more intense sense of this, and it means obeying the truth. It's Psalm 119, verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. This is why Paul writes this letter. The Galatians were running well, but then something happened. Or someone happened, you could say. Who hindered you from obeying the truth, Paul says. Do you know what Paul's number one goal was in all his work as an apostle? Number one goal. What would you say? (laughs) What does Paul want more than anything else as an apostle? You don't have to guess. He says it explicitly in the beginning and the end of Romans. It's both in chapter 1 and in chapter 15 of Romans, but we'll just look at the the opening of Romans. Listen to it. The very beginning of Romans chapter 1. Here's what Paul says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This is the gospel. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Skip a couple lines. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about what? The obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all the nations. Faith's obedience is Paul's number one goal. Has it ever struck you that Paul's goal is that there's a bunch of Gentiles out there among all the nations obeying God? what Paul wants. Because that's what faith looks like. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul asks them. Verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. In other words, you've been tracking with Galatians. This teaching that these agitators are bringing, that you must be circumcised, and all that that entails then about the nature of the Old Covenant and the hard hearts of Israel generally, and the curse of the law 
that we looked at and how God has now inaugurated the new covenant in which your hearts have been changed, Galatians. I'll run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Your hearts have been changed, Galatians. You have the hearing of faith, chapter 3. This persuasion that these agitators are bringing goes against all of that. So, of course, Paul says it's not from him who calls you. But here's some, a little point I want you to see. With credit to Father John, who's in the first service usually, not here right now, but he's the one that pointed this out to us on Wednesday in our pastoral meeting. We always look at the text together, and I'm amazed at what people show me. <laughs> and I'll tie all this together in a bit here. But look very carefully at the end of verse 8. At the verb, Paul says, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Not him who called you once a long time ago in the past, though God had done that, right? Paul uses that language explicitly in chapter 1 of Galatians. He had called you. Here he says, it's him who calls you. Still, today, Galatians, now, when you're facing this challenge from these false teachers that Paul's about to eviscerate in this passage, the God who called you to begin with He's still calling you. Do you hear that? He's been calling you. In fact, he's calling you, Galatians, right now through this very letter by the Spirit. That's why I'm writing it to you. This is the life of faith. It's the roller coaster of faith and the Lord showing up. By his grace, via Paul and his apostolic letter, just as he's showing up in this room right now to you as you read it 2,000 years later. The Galatians are on the brink. Are you on the brink? Paul says, God's calling you, God's grace is sufficient. Keep running well. Keep obeying the truth. You see, most of the rest of this passage then is Paul talking about these agitators, these teachers from Jerusalem who are pushing circumcision, and he's not gentle. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 10, the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Verse 11, But if I still preach circumcision, which I don't, but evidently these teachers are saying I do, but I'm inconsistent, and sometimes I preach it and say you have to do it, and sometimes I don't, and I'm just not doing it now to make it easier for you Galatians so that, you know, the gospel's not so hard. I'm just trying to please man. Remember that from chapter 1? And I suggested this is probably the argument that was there. Here it is again. That Paul's not consistent and he's just hiding from you, Galatians, what you really have to do. If I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, if that's what I were doing, then the offense of the cross has been removed. And by extension there, Paul's saying these other teachers can't handle the offense of the cross. 
they ultimately won't accept that, and we'll see that explicitly in chapter 6. We'll get there. And then, of course, there's verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Shikes. I won't exposit that one in great detail. <laughs> I wondered this morning how Joan and then Philip were, were going to say confidently the word of the Lord at the end of verse 12, right? <laughs> but it, it's actually not very funny, though we chuckle rightly at, at, at the... We chuckle because... Paul's point's actually very serious. He's not just saying something mean. Paul's point actually is harsher than that. Paul's point is that he wishes these agitators would totally disqualify themselves because according to the very law that they're promoting, if you've ever read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you come across this. Castrated males were not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord. You see what Paul's doing? He's applying their law ironically and saying, I wish they would cut themselves off. Be rendered permanently unclean in the sight of God. I mean, it's a curse. Now here's the question to try and draw this together. How? Why? I mean, it doesn't get stronger than that. Why is it okay that Paul gets that upset? And I mean, this really is a question for all of Galatians, right? Because Paul's not subtle. I mean, the big guns are out, and he's not afraid to fire them. So I'll just remind you of a few verses we've already seen. Here's chapter 1, verse 9. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed meaning cursed by God, right? Paul curses them. Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, we didn't talk a lot about that language, but that's literally put you under an evil influence. Who's cast the evil spell, if you will? It's dark language that Paul uses. Chapter 4, verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them, they care more about themselves than your eternal life, Galatians. They want to shut you out. Verse 30 of chapter 4, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. And you remember what that was about. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. You have no choice, Galatians. Cast them out. And now here we are. I wish they would emasculate themselves. Disqualify themselves according to the very law they wrongly promote as the path to God's blessings. It does not get any stronger than that. So here's the question. What justifies that kind of a statement? There's only one thing I can think of. And it's because Paul knows the issue here is the ultimate one. that if the Galatians go this route, it's all over. You have fallen away from grace, Paul says. 
I will have labored over you in vain. You will have tasted of the things of the Spirit and turned away, if you know Hebrews. And if you think about it, this wasn't just in Galatia. I mean, this was happening in Pauline church after Pauline church, and these teachers, these agitators are going around saying all these things. Had Paul lost this battle, then you and I wouldn't be here. At least, not without the Lord doing things in some other way, I guess, but Christianity among the Gentiles wouldn't have lasted a generation had these agitators won the day. Paul knows eternal life's at stake here, brothers and sisters, not just for the Galatians, but for the sake of all those among the nations to whom Paul desires to see the obedience of faith, according to Romans chapter 1. He knows that the whole game's in this. So he turns to these Galatians then, having leveled the agitators in their eyes in whatever way he can, because now... He turns to these Galatians with everything he's got because they've got to keep running. So that's my pastoral word for you this morning, dear friends. Keep running well. You see, the Galatians got off to a good start. I mean, I even think of the parable of the seed, right, being cast. And sometimes the, the, it flourishes and it grows and it seems great. And something snuffs it out. Got to keep going. You have to keep running well. They'd stopped, or at least they weren't running well somehow with strength, running to finish the race. The Christian life is a race. The Christian life is a race. This is a very biblical metaphor. There's a beginning and there's an end. And there's a path on which it's run and there's a prize to inherit when you get there. It starts with conversion and the finish line is the final judgment. The prize is eternal life and the path is the gospel. That is, it's what God has done in Christ Jesus. It's the cross plus the Spirit in our lives because what does the cross plus the Spirit mean? What does it do? When those are realities in our lives, what does that look like? How do we run? Well, we're back to where we started, right? It's what I pray for you all the time. We run in the way of your commandments. We're free. We obey the truth. Of course we do. Because through the gospel, God's set us free to run the race. Right? It's what the Galatians had to do. It's what you and I have to do, which is why it's my number one prayer for you as your pastor. So listen now, there are two things, at least two things I come up with immediately that can prevent us from running well so as to win the prize. The first one is not explicit in these verses of Galatians 5, though the theme's coming up, but the first one is unchecked sin unchecked sin. I don't mean you sin. I mean you sin and don't repent of it. I mean you sin and you think, well, so what? 
Hebrews 12, verse 1, reflecting. This is Hebrews 12, verse 1. If you know Hebrews, chapter 11 is the chapter about the hall of faith, right? All the examples of faith and how they lived and what they did. And, and then chapter 12 begins, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Clings. You can't run if you're weighted down. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We have to throw off sin, brothers and sisters. And Paul's coming to that later in Galatians chapter 5 because we need the fruit of the Spirit, not the desires of the flesh. And that's the language he's going to get into in the rest of chapter 5. Unchecked sin can weigh you down and prevent you, I mean it, prevent you from finishing the course. Confess it and throw it off. But secondly, it can sometimes be people. It can be people who prevent us from running well. Perhaps there is a certain individual in your life who's hindering your obedience to the truth. Listen to Paul. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's true for churches, and it's true for your life individually as well. Paul's not subtle here. We have to counter that kind of influence. It might mean getting some distance from people, certain people. It might mean having a hard conversation. It might mean parting ways. I mean, these are difficult calls to make. These are case-by-case -case scenarios. There's a lot of wisdom involved in this kind of thing, but Paul uses this proverb one other place in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and there the application is very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, he writes, Your boasting is not good, Corinthians. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven. Do you hear that? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are. Cleanse it out. That's what the Galatians have to do with these agitators. There's a pastoral level on which I'm responsible for the health of this congregation in the case of old leaven. But there's also a level at which you're individually meant to say, is there old leaven somewhere influencing me that I am not following in the way of God? We may find it necessary to cast it out. Run well, obey the truth, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Cleanse out the old leaven. Christian, where is the Lord applying that in your life? Right now. Now, I realize you're not dealing with the precise issue that the Galatians are dealing with. Or if you are, I'll be really shocked, but I don't think so. You're not dealing with that precise issue. But ask yourself, am I running well? I don't mean perfectly. I don't mean you don't ever sin. I mean you run with the Lord. 
you run to Him. In repentance when you sin and with an eye towards Jesus to obey Him all the way to the end. I mean, that's the Christian life. Are you running well? If not, why not? Clear the lane and keep going. But having said that, there's one final thing that I need to say this morning. Lest you have the wrong idea. Because you don't do this all on your own. (laughs) In fact, you can't. This isn't about you enduring on your own strength. Proving to the Lord that you can do it, that you deserve the prize when you get to the end. No. No. Remember, God is the one who calls you, Galatians. From beginning to end. He doesn't call you once back there and then you figure the rest out on your own. No. He calls you on and on and on. And then look at the first part of verse 10 in our text, which I skipped earlier intentionally, but just the phrasing here at the beginning of verse 10. Paul says, Galatians, I have confidence in the Lord. Note that, in the Lord. That you will take no other view. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Notice that Paul's confidence isn't in the Galatians. (laughs) Because ultimately, how is it, brothers and sisters, that the Galatians are going to run well all the way to the end? How is it that you're going to do that? How is it that I'm going to do that? You know how. It's because of the Lord. Because it's the Lord who enlarges the heart, Psalm 119. It's the Lord who grants them and us the hearing of faith. Chapter 3 of Galatians. It's because the Lord sends His very own Spirit to free us, to empower us, to pour grace into your hearts that you remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Even to your last breath. Because as Hebrews says, remember we read it? It's Jesus who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Because what's real in our lives? If we're running with the Lord, the cross, the founder of our faith, and the Spirit. He's the perfecter of our faith. He sent His Spirit to you. Jesus stands behind all of that. Which means it's all grace. It's all grace. I pray this for you as your pastor because I know it's God who is able to sustain you all the way to the end. Because left to ourselves, we don't make it. Which is why Hebrews 12 says we do one thing as we run. Remember? You look to Jesus. You look to Jesus as you run. You look to the Lord who said to His disciples things like, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is freedom we're talking about. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I will run in the way of your commandments. There's joy and freedom in that. 
We're coming right back to freedom in verse 13 next week. We run and we rest in Jesus at the same time because we know it's not of our own strength that will make it. He's, this, this, here's our same Apostle Paul as we finish out here. Our same Apostle Paul who writes this in Philippians 1 verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 to 9, our Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called, Paul writes, into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And again in 1 Thessalonians 5, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. We must learn to say, we must learn to say, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, listen to this. I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. <laughs> this is the Christian life. It's God who works in you, Paul writes in Philippians 2, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or, as Hebrews says, look to Jesus, knowing that as we do, he's the author and perfecter of our faith, and so we'll run like the psalmist runs. We'll run like Abraham ran. We'll run like Sarah ran, and like all Sarah's children will run, obeying the truth, fulfilling the law, we'll see next week, and one day saying like Paul, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's what I pray for you. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's you, brothers and sisters. I pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.